All right, Mark chapter 8. Uh, let's start reading again here in verse uh, 27 and just kind of pick up where we were last time. Last time, I believe we got down through verse 31-ish, kind of hit sporadically. So I want to go back and then work through the details here and uh, just spend a few minutes in, in this section as we end because literally we are at a pivotal point in the book of Mark. Um, you can Mark can be outlined several different ways. I mean, it, it's amazing how you can outline stuff. But really, chapters 1 to 831, the Lord's concentrating on the throne and the kingdom and getting everything ready. And then from 831 to the end of the book, chapter 16, uh, verse 20, I think it is. Just kind of slipped my mind. Yep, verse 20 is all about the cross and Calvary and going that direction. So we're at a pivotal point here where Christ moves from him thinking about going to the throne and going and about the kingdom and establishing the little flock and all that to now he is going to consume his mind about going to the cross, going to the tree. So um, we're here right at this transition of thinking. So there's going to be some things said here in Mark that we'll see aren't covered in Matthew actually vice versa sorry there's things said in Matthew that Mark doesn't cover and so forth and uh, again that has to deal with the presentation the portrait being painted of the Messiah Mark he's that servant of Jehovah servant of the Lord here he is serving so he's not they're not going to contain he Mark doesn't contain all of the details and uh, we'll look at that verse 27. And Jesus went out and his, disciple, uh, and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. So he, again, the question there, who do they say I am? They answer, verse 29, and he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answered and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. Now, that in Mark, that's real quick conversation. Matthew, if you go back there to Matthew 16, and I know we looked at this last time, but just kind of get it back in our thinking here. In Matthew 16, there is a whole dialogue, a whole conversation between Peter and the Lord. And Mark doesn't see it. Mark doesn't, Mark doesn't show that because Mark's job isn't the legality, isn't the speech of the king. It isn't, it's the, here's a servant, we're getting on with business. We're getting on with the work. So you'll notice Matthew 16, verse 13, when Jesus Christ came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? Now in Mark, he says, whom do men say that I am? In Matthew, it's the Son of Man. He invokes that Davidic covenant title, Son of Man. And again, Daniel 7, in the prophets, they, they use that title to identify him as he comes to take dominion in the earth. So he's coming to take over and to rule and to reign in the earth as king. So in Matthew 16... Here's the kingly title, Son of Man. 
Uh, and they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon and Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, in Mark, he, Peter just says, Thou art the Christ. So, again, there's that additional information in Matthew in the conversation identifying the issue of who he is. He is the Son of the living God. Now, again, Mark isn't discounting Christ being Son of the living God. Uh, we looked last time, Mark 1, he clearly lays out who Christ is as the Son of God. But here, it's not about that, it's about that servant. And when you talk about the servants, uh, yesterday I was met with some folks who were talking about Philemon and Onesimus. And Onesimus, everybody says he's a slave. Well, a slave in what manner? We usually think slave, we think about the Old South and the Civil War and all that, but that wasn't Onesimus. Onesimus would be more on the line of an, an indentured servant. In other words, Philemon had money involved with, Simon, or with Onesimus. I, I don't know what we're talking The servant. Paul tells Philemon, when he comes back to you, forgive him, put it to my account, I'll settle the accounts, you accept him now as a brother because he is saved. He's, he's a brother. He's been profitable for us. By the way, the thing in Onesimus in Philemon, he makes that comment there to Philemon about he owes you. Uh, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable. There, there's an owe there. Onesimus owes money. And, you know, so you think about if, we, if Onesimus was a slave like the Deep South in our history, we think about it, then what's a believer owning another person? If you think about it, it does, well, he would own them in an indentured servant. Hey, I helped out this guy. It's a business proposition. But now Onesimus is a brother. So now that changes that relationship completely. However, it doesn't let Onesimus out of owing the money to Philemon. Now those terms are being rewritten. If the contract's ripped up, we're going to rewrite the contract. You follow that? Well, in Mark, here's the servant. We don't care about all the pedigree. We just want to know, can he work? And that's what the Lord's been doing. Now, Matthew 16, we need to care about his pedigree here because we're talking about the king. So in Mark, I'm sorry, in Matthew 16, he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Mark just says, Thou art Christ, and moves on. The full title's in Matthew. Now, if you're in Matthew 16, if you look at verse 21, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how he's going to go and, and so forth. Well, Mark 8, verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. See, there's a miss of a conversation in verse 17, 18, 19, and 20 that we read about in Matthew. Matthew 16, 17. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also, 
unto thee. You see, the Father revealed information, but now the Son is going to reveal some information, and he's going to give some information to Peter about Peter having the and being the head of the apostles. Verse 18, And I say also unto, unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou, Peter, shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Peter, come over to Matthew 18. Peter has, has on, 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 um, autonomy here. He can function on his own. In representing the king. In Matthew 18, you start there in verse 15, and you get the issue of here's the group together. They can operate too now and function in his authority in his absence. But they have to have a quorum. And that's what verse uh, 18 there, verse 18, Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind up. Excuse me, on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. And For where two or three are gathered together in my name, take a collection. Now, there am I in the midst of them. So you have... You have the same instruction that he gave Peter about the functioning and the running and the orderly maintenance of the kingdom. But then he turns to the group, you, ye, the plurality. Now, in order to get things done in the group, what do we have to have? We have to have a quorum. Two or three are gathered together. And when we have the quorum, whatever you bind is bound. Whatever you loose is loosed. That's why in Galatians 2, when Paul meets with Peter, James, and John, all three of them are there. And the reason for that is that they have lost their authority as apostles in the scheme. Because we're in Acts 15, we're in Galatians 2, they are diminishing away. See, So there's a movement, but the right hand of fellowship, the binding and the loosing, what do they do? They loose themselves from their apostolic authority, and then they bind themselves to what God's doing through the Apostle Paul and the Gentiles. So there's a movement there. This stuff just isn't on here to, to fill up pages. There's things going on. So when you come back to, uh, well, go back there to Matthew 16 and run back to Mark 8. Because right where we're at here in Mark 8, and again, Mark skips the stuff about Peter and the authority. Because Mark's focus isn't the Lord's relationship with the disciples in an authoritative manner. It's now it's the, the relationship with them as servant. He's teaching them to serve. So we come to 831, hold on to Matthew 16, and he says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. He began to, he's began to teach. Now, Matthew 16, 21, 
from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem, suffer many things of the elders and the priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised again the third day. And then uh, Peter rebukes him, and he rebukes Peter in verse 23. So in Mark 8, as well as in Mark 16, he begins to speak to say some things. Now, Matthew and Mark do it a little different. We understand that. But Peter here, he's stunned by the new information of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So he, he doesn't agree with that. And again, we said it last time, Peter's not a coward. He, he's a commercial fisherman. So in Peter's world, in his thought, you don't lose a fight. You always win the fight. And you know, Peter would, all this is new to Pete. To, here you are, Lord. You are the Son of Man. You are the Son of the living God. You are our Savior. You're our Redeemer. You're our Messiah. You're, gonna, you're our King, and you're just giving up. So he gets a little upset, and he turns, and he rebukes the Lord. Um, Mark 8, I'm in now, verse 32. And he spake that saying openly, and Peter rebuked him took him and began to rebuke him. Again, the critical point here, because he, he says it openly, clearly, plainly. There isn't any parable here. There isn't, okay, what did he mean? What was that? Was the, was the, was the inflection of his voice on this, or you know how they can get, okay? So Peter, again, reacts here. He, he, he's... He reacts to the message of, of the crucifixion of Christ, the death and the burial and the resurrection, in a shocked manner. So that means that prior to this moment, they knew nothing of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's a critical point here. That's a pivot point. Because they know nothing about the fact that he's got to go to Jerusalem and die and be resurrected. So that tells you that the gospel of the kingdom that they've been preaching doesn't contain the preaching of the cross. It, it just doesn't. To say it does is to not read the verses. To say it does is not to believe the verses. I was listening to a, a, a preacher, obviously, and he's like, there's no hell. Really? There's not, to, to say that is to not read verses. He's going to get down here. We'll see him here in Mark, and he says, hey, you, you can lose your soul. And it's like, wait a second, if I lose my soul where? Well, in the universalism realm, it doesn't matter. You're going to all get saved in the end anyway. But to say there's, not, there's none of this, to say, that they, or pre, to say that Paul just continued preaching what Peter and them preached, there's nothing new here, is excuse me, is to simply ignore what the verses say. And the, the whole of the evidence says otherwise. So when you talk about the gospel of grace, or the Romans 1, the gospel of Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, I delivered unto you, what? How that Christ died for our sins and was buried and rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Now that becomes ours. So at this moment... Now the Lord is shifting. He's transitioning to a new topic in his earthly ministry, and that is 
going to the cross. And again, what does Peter say? Ain't going to happen. How can you just give up? He doesn't like to lose. He likes to win. That, you know, when we get over into the garden scene and he whips out that sword, there's a reason. He's there to win. Because what Peter didn't understand, he didn't, ke- he didn't get, was Christ's willingness to surrender. And he, he looked at that as weak, being weak. And Peter just, how can you give up without a fight? We're going to fight. So verse 32, and he spake that saying openly, again, clearly, plainly, simply. There's no reading into it. There's no question. Verse 33, but when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And I believe we said some things about that last time. But what Christ does here is he's going to move now in his thinking about going to the cross. So he's going to rebuke Peter. We'll we'll look at it here in verse 33. But what I want you to see is I want you to see that from this moment on to Calvary, roughly chapter 14, 15, right in there, The cross is on his mind. Chapter 9, we have the transfiguration. Now look at verse 9, 9-9. Just just notice the the language. I was listening to Brother Kurz, Alex Kurz, the other day, and uh, I I was looking for something to kind of get some clarity. And he made a comment about notice the language that Paul uses. The language. A couple Sunday mornings ago, we were talking about, in Romans 11, the much more. He uses that phrase. Think about, you know, the so I've been paying attention to the language being used. It's very, uh, Morris Chestnut one time said, every word on every line on every page is important. But the language, notice the language, 9-9. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them. So they've been up on the mount. The the transfiguration has been there. He charged them that they should tell no man. Now, in 830, right before he begins to talk about it, you know what he says? Charge them that they should tell no man of him. So we got this language about don't tell anybody. Okay? Then he says what the things of uh, 9-9, that they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying within themselves, questioning one another what the raising from the dead should mean. Notice, he's, don't go tell anybody about what you just saw, and we're going to go over here and don't, you know, don't say anything over here until what has happened. The resurrection has happened. Now, it's very interesting, the language. Risen, the end of verse 9, risen from the dead. Now, the, the risen from the dead is different than the rising of the dead. Okay? So the, the issue here of the resurrection from the dead, it doesn't say the resurrection of the dead. That's like the dead walking, the walking dead. <laughs> I've been watching that show, trying to catch up, you know. kind of. Well, it's not that. See, it's from. From 
is not everybody in the grave. From is somebody, and the rest stay dead. Of is who? All of them. All of them are raised. So if he said, he doesn't say the rising of, of the dead, that would mean that all the dead rise. But he says from the dead. So some's gonna, some will rise and others won't. And that's very critical here. Again, new information here. The question that rises in their mind in verse 10, 9, 10, is the issue of the rising from the dead. Not of the dead, but they know there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. They're clear on They understand that. Prophets say, talk about it, that's there. But this one isn't. He's like, from the dead? What what's he talking about? So the Lord is going to talk to him, and he'll actually introduce some dispensational things there, and we'll see that. Come down to verse 30. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. Again, he keeps ta he's talking about the death and the resurrection, and he's talking about don't tell anybody. For he taught, verse 31, his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. And they understood everything he said and were happy. No. And they understood it all and rejoiced in their justification. No. They understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him. They he, he, he's leaving Galilee, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. So what's obviously on his mind? The cross. In chapter 11 of Mark, from 11, from chapter, um, well, come over to chapter 10. Sorry, 10, verse 32. From chapter 11 through chapter 14 is the, is the week of the, the cross. Okay? But look at chapter 10, verse 32. And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem. So they're headed, where are they going? Jerusalem. And Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he began, he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered into the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him, and the third day he shall rise again. 10.1, they leave Galilee, and now they're, go, they're, on, they're almost to Jerusalem, and again, what's on his mind? The cross. So when you come back to 8, chapter 8, 33 here, 31, he begins to tell them, and that, is, that issue of him dying and resurrect and being raised is all-consuming in his thinking. He's no longer worried about the throne and the kingdom and the masses. He's now concentrating in on that little flock and what's going to happen now with Calvary. So verse 33, okay? Again, you got to catch what's happening here because there's some people that they got some crazy ideas out there. And you got to be careful here. If you look at verse 33, 
But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. There's a whole teaching out there that says that Satan is trying to stop the cross. He's trying to get Christ using Peter to stop the event from happening. So the rebuke here is really, you know, Peter, what Peter is saying is what Satan wants said. And that when you look over at 1 Corinthians 2, when you begin to think about that and then to begin to run verses, you find little verses like this, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. That's Satan and his crowd. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Well, wait a minute. Satan and those guys know he's going to die. He's just told everybody, I'm going to die. They don't understand the hidden wisdom, verse 7, had they known it, of verse 8 is verse 7, the hidden wisdom. They don't know what Calvary means. They just know what? He's going to die. He doesn't tell them what it means. He just says what? It's time for me to go do Genesis 3.15. It's time. So they know that they're... They know there's a conflict brewing, been going on since the beginning of time. They understand it. They, they, by the way, the adversary knows there's a conflict, and he thinks he can win. <laughs> so he's not standing in the way, trying to stop the cross. Rather, he's going to enter Judas to get it done, because nobody else has seemed to get the job done. So when he's talking here about Satan rebuking Peter and get thee behind me, Satan, He's not saying Satan's trying to stop Calvary, so, you know, Satan, knock it off. But rather, he's talking about this is what you're not, the issue isn't get thee behind me, Satan. The issue is, is thou savorest not the things of God, but the things of men. And that's the issue. Uh, this get thee behind me, Satan, is exactly, come over to Luke 4, what he said to Satan in the temptation. And it's important to catch this because he's not telling what he's talking about is not don't go to the cross, but rather, Peter, you are talking just like Satan talked back over here. But it wasn't anything about cross. It's about you're savoring the things of man, not the things of God. Luke 4, you have the temptation of Christ, the first 12 verse, 13 verses, verse 6. The devil said unto him, now watch, all this power will I give thee. So we got power. And the glory of them. For what is delivered unto me and whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. What do men seek? Power, glory, and worship. And Jesus answered him and said unto him, No, all these nations are mine. No, he doesn't say that. 
By the way, all the kingdoms of the world, that included the nation of Israel, they're in satanic captivity. He owns them. They're the lawful captive. Verse 8, get thee behind me, Satan. For it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. What's he doing? He's Again, he quoted exactly back here in Matthew, or in Mark 8, what, what was Satan's issue here? Power, glory, worship. What's man look for? Same thing. What is Peter focusing in on? The things of man, not the things of God. So when you come back to Mark 8, stop in chapter 10, and I, we looked at this last time, but this just goes right in it. Here he is, he's uh, Mark 10, verse 35, after he's just told everybody what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to resurrect on the third, rise again on the third day. Verse 35, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall. They completely ignore what he just said. Good bunch of bozos. But so what they come in, they he just gives them this great conversation about what's to happen. It goes right over their head. They don't understand it. They don't actually they don't care. We got a, we got a problem. We have a beef. And he said unto them, verse 36, what would ye that I should do? For you, I love the sarcasm. You know, just you just read it that way. They say unto him, "Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand." Notice, in thy glory. Now Matthew says, "In thy kingdom." Well, so what? what but what are the two boys? What are J and J looking at? Glory, James and John. What a glory power verse 38 but jesus said unto them ye know not what ye ask can ye drink of the cup that i drink of and be baptized with the baptism that i am baptized with and they said unto him we can now the cup he's talking about is the cup in the garden the wrath of the indignation being poured out the baptism that's his death and what do they say we we can Sure, we can do it. We're good. Yes, we can. Verse 39, And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized, with all shall ye be baptized. You know what? They are going to face wrath, and they are going to face death. Just not the one he's going to do, but they are going to do that. But to sit, verse 40, on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. I love that. I wish I could, guys, but I can't. It's not mine to give. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. James, they hear, what, hey, you know, James and John, they're in there talking to the Lord about sitting on the right and left hand. What? They get mad. That's exactly what human nature would do. He's overlooking us. Hang on, Lord. Here, here's my pedigree. Here's what I've been doing. And now we've got a human humanity thing here. We have a human nature fight. They, these two guys have jumped right to the front. Hang on a minute. They're not the qual most qualified. You know, well, yeah, we are. No, you're not. You know, and all this. 
you know, actually the guy that's in the front is Peter. He just got handed that. But anyway, verse 42, but Jesus called them to him and said unto them, ye know not that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise, ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they, their great ones exercise authority upon them. So that's the principle. You guys, what, how does man rule? Lord over that, have the authority, power, glory, honor. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever shall be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. That's how they should be thinking, but they're not. Don't follow the things of men. So when you come back to chapter 8, verse 33, the rebuke isn't, get thee behind me, Satan. You're not going to stop me. The rebuke is, thou savorest not the things of God, but the things that be of man. You see, what they're missing is the Lord in his first coming, Zechariah 9.9, is lowly, riding on the donkey, meek and mild. He's not coming in kingdom glory until his second coming. They miss that. They're looking for him to come in and raise the roof. James and John are like, hey, we're going to sit on that throne. And he's like, dude, you're not even going to be here when the throne comes. (laughs) You're going to be dead. You will face the wrath. You will face death. It's not mine to give because what, they think he's coming back as, you know, what Revelation describes, and he's not. So what he's dealing with here is he says, look, guys, I didn't come first to bring in the glory. That's going to follow. I came first to be that suffering servant. I came first to be meek and lowly and mild. That's where I came. So in 8.33, that's what he's dealing with. The issue is you guys are looking at the things of men, and you shouldn't be. You should be looking at the things of God. That's why then he says, verse 34, 8.34, And when he had called the people unto him, with his disciples also he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now he's got everybody. He's been talking to the disciples, the apostles. They don't get it. Now he's got everybody. And he says, okay, guys, here's what it's going to require for you to be my disciple. Stewardship. Here's what it's required. You know what it is? It's to serve, not to be served. It's to deny yourself and come over here and join in with what's going to about to happen to me, which is that issue of being death. Here's the criteria. You have to be willing to participate in his rejection. That's that thing in chapter 10 when he asked there, uh, can ye drink of the cup that I drink of? Can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized? Can you handle the rejection 
and then the subsequent death that's going to come from that. That's, boy, it is a great question. <laughs> because whosoever, verse 834, will come after me, let him. That's a willful choice to participate, to be a part of what's going on. And if you are going to follow me, this is what it's going to cost. It's going to cost everything. Verse 35, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Oh, yeah, by the way, there's no hell. Really? Okay. That makes sense to me. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, that's the Pharisees, the scribes who he's just talking to, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he come in the glory of his Father with the Holy Angel. Now there's the second coming, okay? So kind of get the end of the foot, the end of the story here, we'll get to it. Basically, he said, look, you don't stand with me. I won't stand with you going into the kingdom. You'll just be cut off. You'll be tossed into the fire. You'll be that chaff on the fire on the floor there, threshing room floor, and we'll just burn you up. So when he talks here, here's the cost. Are you going to join me in my rejection and in my death? And if you are, then let's go. But if you're not, get out of the way, go home, because I'm not, when I come back, I don't forget. That's their program. Now, watch, look over at Matthew 7. Here's what he's doing in Mark 8. So Matthew 7. <laughs> go look at Matthew 7 to get what he's doing in Mark 8. Look at Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Matthew seven thirteen. Enter ye at the straight gate. Uh, straight, that's like a straight jacket. It's narrow, okay? It's tight. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Notice you got two ways to go here. You can go in at the wide gate, and where does that lead to? Destruction. Or you can go in at the narrow gate, the straight gate, and where does that leave? Life. That's what he's doing in Mark 8. You got two choice, you got a, you got a choice here. If you're going to be my disciple, you're going to have to go in the narrow gate, the straight gate. You're going to have to come and join me in my rejection. Now go back to Matthew 8. You're going to have to come back and be over here, and here's why. Verse 35. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. That's real commitment. That's what commitment looks like, you know. Sometimes today in the age of grace, we have a commitment problem. You know, there was a day, I, I was reading, this was years ago, there was a day when in grace churches, 
people would make commitments and carry them out. Today, they make a commitment and about halfway through, fudge on it and say, eh, not going to do it. Well, you made the commitment. Yeah, but I don't want it because, no, you made the, you know, there's no integrity in it any longer. Here, that, that lack of integrity is going to cost them their life. This is the kind of commitment that they're going to need to get through the 70th week of Daniel, to get through the time of Jacob's trouble, to get, to do what, when Matthew said, endure to the end, they're going to be what? Saved. Physical salvation, not justification, but physical salvation into the kingdom. Verse 36, for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What profit is there? James and John were looking to be have that profit of sitting on the left and the right. And he says, you're looking at the wrong things, guys. You're, you're, not, you're not paying attention here. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Boy, what a great question. What are you willing to sacrifice? What are you willing to ask for to save your soul? He's telling them here. He's telling them, look, whosoever therefore, verse 38, shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of whom all of, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed. If you don't stand with me, being ashamed right now in the rejection, you're ashamed of me. When I come back in my second coming with the holy angels, I'm going to be ashamed of you. Now, this isn't us in the dispensation of grace. This is future, by the way. But in the moment, this is how he, this is how he lays out for the disciples, for the people. How, does a, how do you become a part of the little flock, the believing remnant? that's going to rule the kingdom, have that, you're going to not be ashamed of him. You're going to take, you're going to join him in his rejection. That's the point. That's the issue. That's what they're doing. And if they don't endure to the end, if they don't get through it, guess what's going to happen? They're going to be on the outside watching, uh, that thing in Matthew, you're going to, and this is my paraphrase, you're going to stand here and watch the Gentiles walk in to the kingdom. And you're going to go, wait a minute. And you, he goes, nope, because what did you do? You rejected me here. Now, again, this isn't us. This isn't the church, the body of Christ, so don't put this on us, okay? Now, you can, Paul does say, be, not, be thou therefore not ashamed of the Lord nor of me, the, the message there, the testimony of the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. You can be ashamed of standing for the word rightly divided, and you can shy away and not speak up. And you know what it does for you? It doesn't get you, it, you're still in. <laughs> you don't lose anything. They have a tremendous opportunity of losing everything. And again, this is how the little flock is going to get through the 70th week. It's their thinking process. It's the mental attitude that they're going to have to have 
to get through. You think about that. They're going to be sitting there starving, and they're going to see the wicked prosper, the wicked have all the food, the wicked do, and they're going to have to rely upon the word of God to them that what's he going to do one day? Restore them. Just like Job, that's why Jude talked about the patience of Job. They got to have it. They're going to get it back. But right now, they got to get through it. That's why Psalms would say, patience is the salvation of your soul. Patiently waiting, moving through the process. So they need to savor the things that be of God and not the things of men. And yet, what is Israel doing? What, are the, what is Peter doing? No, we're going to win. How can you say that? How can you just surrender? And he looks at Peter and goes, Pete, what you just said is what Satan said, which is focusing in on the things of men. You're not paying attention to the thing that what I'm, what has what the Lord been doing? He's been gathering that little flock together. He's been establishing the authority and the, the governmental structure. And he's been teaching them, he's going to take them into the kingdom. And Peter does what? No, we're not going to lose. And he's like, dude, we have to lose. That's my suffering. You know, just, yeah, pull his hair out, you know. <laughs> That's exactly what he's doing. So then in 9-1, now we'll, we'll start all this next time. In two weeks, 9-1, and he said unto them, see that, and he said unto them, Verily I say unto you that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves and he was transfigured before them. What he says, Mark has, if you're going to be ashamed of me, when I come back, I'm going to be ashamed of you. So then what does he go do? He takes Peter, James, and John up, and he shows them the glory of the kingdom. But when he comes back down, verse 9, 9, 9, what's he talk about? Not the glory of the kingdom, but his death and resurrection. See that? He doesn't continue. He shows them, I just told you that when I come back, if you're with me, you're with If you're with me, you're with me. If you're against me, you're against me. And he, and he shows them the kingdom glory. They have the great conversation with Moses and Elijah and all that. And then they come down, and he, in verse 9-9, nine, 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 what's he talk about? Boy, that kingdom glory is great, isn't it? No, he talks about, i got to go to Jerusalem, i got to die, and i got to be resurrected. Because all of the glory of the kingdom is based upon him suffering. He comes in as that man of sorrows, being numbered with the train. All of that has to have, that's the foundation of the glory that shall follow. That's why in Peter, Peter makes that great talk about how the, the, the prophets write and they're searching and inquiring. And what is this stuff about the sufferings of Christ and the glory? What is this? And, it, you know, you think about Psalms 22. The first 20 verses, 21 verses, is about the cross. And then the 21 to the end is about the glory. Why? Because the glory is built upon the suffering. 
So what do we have here? We have, here's the Messiah. He's the, serve, the suffering servant of the Lord, of Jehovah. The believing remnant is going to suffer under some persecution. Here's the Messiah. He's going to suffer under persecution. That's why when you read the book of Psalms, you think you're reading about the Messiah and you're reading about the believing remnant. You think you're reading about the believing remnant, but you're really reading about them. Why? Because he is so identified with them completely. Bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. And again, he's, chapter 8 here, chapter 9, he's getting down to the end. Chapter 11, the last week of his life, here it is. He didn't have time to wait. And then Mark, he wastes no time. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. So we'll pick up in chapter 9 next time. We're 10 minutes early for the, for the hour, but no reason to jump into something where we can't get it done. We're the flow of thought. But just catch what's happening. He's been dealing with the Pharisees. He pulls over here. He heals the deaf and dumb. He deals with the Syrophoenician woman. The Gentiles are ready to be the blessings. The nation of Israel, here's the process and how I'm going to restore them. They're not ready. They're rejecting me. I'm going to feed the 4,000. In the feeding of the 4,000, here's the provisions of the Messiah. Here's the servant working. The Pharisees say, we need another sign. He goes, no, no more signs for you. No soup for you. You're done. The disciples have missed it. They're slow on the uptake. He comes in and he says, hey, who do they say I am? Well, I'm sorry, he heals the blind man, okay? Demonstrating, again, that process of restoring and healing the nation. He comes in, Peter, who do they say I am? You're the son of man, the son of the living God. You're the Christ. And Peter unloads about that. And the Lord says, nope, you're focusing in on the things of men not on the things of God, because if you focus there on the things of men, when I come back, I you, I'll, won't even acknowledge you. You need to be over here where you need to be. Then he pulls him up, shows him the kingdom glory, but goes right back to talking about Calvary. Why? Because Calvary is the foundation of it all. So now as we get into the end, it's going to be about that issue. What is caught his mind Calvary, the cross that's where he put the blinders back on right there, okay alright, dearly Father we thank you for the evening Lord, we thank you for your word and above all Lord we thank you for the insight into the passage here and, the, and, the, and just rejoicing and seeing what the Lord's doing and we thank you for that and we'll give you the praise and the honor, in your name we pray Amen